Well, there has been a lot of talk lately about the Nashville statement and more so in our culture over the last few years of how to treat and understand this issue of sexual identity and sexuality within Christianity. And so that is going to be the conversation today. You're listening to Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly, And joining me is my good friend, my roommate, Neil Harden. Thanks for coming on again, Neil. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is the second time you've been on. Yes. And for those of you who missed the first time, Neil is my roommate. He uh, is studying theology at Talbot School of Theology. And you're done with your first year now. Yes, done with my first year. Hopefully, you only have a year and a half left. Awesome. Then you're finishing with your master's of theology. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil was a engineer before as well, uh, but is here studying theology and uh, also is very involved in political theology mm-hmm. and writes a lot on politics. Yeah, I want to eventually do my PhD in political philosophy. Awesome. Very good. And so uh, he recently wrote an article on the Nashville Statement, uh, and you can find that at his website is neilharden.com. And he wrote an article titled, Why is the Nashville Statement Necessary? And since I've been wanting to have this kind of conversation on sexuality within Christianity, and then with the Nashville Statement being released, I asked Neil if he would come join me, and he agreed to do so. And so maybe, uh, Neil, to start off, for those of, uh, that maybe don't know, what is the Nashville Statement? So the Nashville Statement is basically a series of affirmations and denials um, from top evangelical leaders from all over the country, um, just to lay out a very clear vision of what God's intended purpose is for sexuality, for marriage, um, just for everything dealing with uh, sex and gender identity and all these different facets that our culture is currently dealing with. Okay. Yeah. And and if you look at kind of the preamble uh, for the Nashville statement, they kind of make the statement that evangelical Christians at the dawn of the 21st century find themselves living in a period of historic transition. As Western cultures become increasingly post-Christian, it has embarked upon a massive revision on what it means to be a human being. So that's kind of an important point is that this this kind of covers the very nature of being a human being. Uh, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male and female? And then goes into kind of a lot of the sexuality of it. Um, and so you kind of wrote initially kind of why is the Nashville statement necessary? Yeah, I basically said like the assumptions that our culture or really all of human, all of humanity has taken for granted throughout human history about gender, about male and female and what those things mean. Like the assumptions we take for granted are being challenged now. They have been, they've been challenged for probably going on since the the 60s and 70s, but it's a continuation of that. So a lot of what people thought male and female meant, what what gender identity meant, um, those assumptions are being challenged. And I think as as in throughout all of church history, whenever an issue like challenges uh, something we we hold to be true, the, the church is often throughout history, whether it's the deity of Christ or the Trinity or the canonization of scripture, like the church has constantly had these councils or these groups of uh, top church leaders come together to have this uh, conversation and to lay down, like, what does the Bible teach on this subject? Yeah. Yeah. And like, and as you mentioned, we've seen this kind of happen throughout all of church history with the council of Nicaea and all these different councils talking about, you know, when, when, when heresy kind of started to creep into the church, trying to say, you know, Jesus is not, you know, a physical body. Jesus is not this, Jesus is not God eternal. Uh, then, you know, it kind of came together and reaffirmed, no, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is eternal. He is God. Um, he's not just this created being, uh, like kind of the heresy was creeping in at that, at that point. And so, mm-hmm. And so we've seen this. And so we see, you know, the, the Nicene Creed. And uh, we also see, you know, the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, right? That where, where people come together and 
try to kind of define the Christian definition of, of what do we believe inerrancy is of Scripture. And mm-hmm. so this has happened, and, and it normally comes at a time where where people start to talk and and kind of bring uh, a different idea or try to revise the general Christian teaching, and, and it kind of forces the church then to kind of make this kind of statement. The problem, though, I think that a lot of people think is that this statement seems very hateful. It's just this bold statement. Is it wrong in one aspect? And we're kind of going to get to the practical in a little bit, but to make that kind of statement? I know, because like, to make any truth claim, like the other side's making an opposite truth claim. Yeah. Um, but just because it's dealing with a very, with an issue that's very personal to a lot of people, it's yeah. uh, central to how they view themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, when you tell them that how they view themselves is incorrect, then that's going to cause hurt feelings. That's going to yeah. cause tension. And that might be a little bit different of... of how people look at this compared to previous statements in the past by the mm-hmm. church, because no one holds inerrancy as, as someone who they are personally, um, or the deity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a, the belief that someone has and maybe telling someone that their belief is wrong, you know, might hurt their feelings a little bit, but this is something that people hold core of who they are as their sexuality. And so this is kind of much more of a personal thing. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, one important kind of distinction I want to point out here is I think it's important to recognize the difference of orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. And for those that aren't familiar with those terms, orthodoxy simply means sound belief, our correct belief. And so the, the orthodox position is what does Christianity believe? Uh, what does the church teach on this issue? What is the orthodox position? And, and generally, the orthodox position is more of a statement. This is what we believe. And so when a Christian wants to say what they believe about, like, for example, the deity of Christ or the inerrancy of scripture, these kind of things, they have a statement or a document they can go back to and say, I hold to this. And it states that belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, what we're seeing in response to the Nashville statement, is that it doesn't bring in the orthopraxy, which is the correct practice, how to put it into practice. And so so I think that's an important distinction, is that these documents oftentimes make a statement, what a Christian believes, but is not showing you how to put it into practice. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't really have that function. And I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts. Do you think that these statements now, since they, uh, the age of internet, and everyone is reading this, not just the church, uh, but since everyone is is seeing this statement, should we kind of change how we make these statements and make them more, you know, focused on the orthopraxy as well as the orthodoxy or just still stick to this is what Christianity believes about sexuality? Well, the issue is, is that if you talk about both, both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, um, it's very hard to get a bunch of uh, top evangelical leaders or just top church leaders to all agree on all of those issues at the same time. Okay. Um, so I think... A lot of times, sometimes it's better just to get the orthodoxy in place, which is what they usually agree on, um, okay. and then just continue the discussion afterwards about what does the practice. But I think it's important to not simply leave it at orthodoxy, that orthopraxy is also necessary a necessary component of what needs to be talked about and discussed. Yeah, that is a great point. You know, and, and just now it kind of popped in my mind. I, I think I saw Babylon B, you know, a few months back, and it, and it made some statement of how, you know, Christian holds to traditional Christian views from last 2000 years and, and culture is shocked. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, that's why maybe a statement like this is important is that maybe our culture is starting to think that, oh, oh, Christians should hold to this position or they should hold to this. When in reality, when a Christian holds to what Christianity has taught for 2000 years, our culture is shocked by it. How could you believe such a thing? Mm-hmm. 
And again, this is a statement that is just reaffirming what has been taught by the church, what the Bible has taught, you know, what we see in scripture for the last 2000 years. And so it's just reaffirming and making that kind of very clear, direct statement, what the church believes. Now, but the second kind of part of this and how I want to respond is now, how should Christians respond to this? Now we kind of see what Christianity teaches when it comes to sexuality and gender. Um, then how should we respond? And, and you kind of wrote uh, the majority of your blog on kind of moving beyond theory. Uh, do you kind of want to go into a little bit on what you mean by kind of moving beyond theory? Uh, yeah, just sort of what we were talking about before about just not since, since this is such a personal issue to so many people and like who they are, how they live their life that um, we can't just simply say this is what's right and then just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, we have to uh, move beyond that and to, and to ask questions like how do we disciple people who are struggling with this? How do we um, minister to those living in the homosexual community? Um, how does a Christian who's struggling with same-sex attraction uh, live a life that's pleasing to God and still um, upholding biblical values at the same time? So I think just by the nature of what this subject entails that we, we can't just simply be content with just laying out the orthodoxy or just what the correct belief is. Yeah. And I think a good video uh, I would suggest you watching, and I'll post this on the blog when, when this goes on the blog, but um, is uh, a video from Preston Sprinkle, who is uh, works for the Center of Faith is, is, is this organization that's put out this video, and it's called Dear Church, I'm Gay. And, and it's a video, about 20-minute video, uh, that Preston Sprinkle has put out discussing how do we go from, okay, this is the Christian position, to then how do we minister uh, to those and work with those people who do fall into these ways of living and these belief systems that maybe do go against what the tradition, what Christianity is hold to. And so you kind of mentioned that, that there are real people, both in and out of the church, who struggle with these issues in a deep fundamental way. And that we know we need to know how to respond. And you kind of have your personal testimony uh, that relates to this and kind of what you've gone through. Yeah. So, I mean, my testimony, I grew up a Christian in a Christian home. During middle school, I was going to a Christian school at the time. And I've actually had to struggle with same-sex attractions. That's been my thorn in the flesh, so to speak, if you want to put a scriptural label on it. But it's... You know, when you grow up in the church, you grow up in a Christian home, you have a certain vision for how your life is supposed to turn out. Like mm -hmm. you imagine that one day you'll have a girlfriend, you'll get married, um, you'll have, uh, you know, the house of the white picket fence and yeah. all that. But, you know, when at age 12, I just started to, you know, going through puberty, middle school is a very confusing time. And it's like, oh, I'm developing same sex attractions. Like, what the heck? I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting this. Yeah. Um, and so I've had to throughout my life, uh, just deal with and answer a lot of these hard questions about like, am I gay? Like, what am I? Why do I struggle with this and not like everyone else? Why? Uh, or what does it look like for me to live a life pleasing to God? Is homosexuality even wrong? If it is, and why would I be struggling with this? Um, like, these are the kinds of questions that often come up uh, when you have to deal with it on a personal level. And it's like, it has huge implications for how you're going to live your life. Yeah. And so when it comes to kind of these statements and, and kind of the church belief, um, maybe first, what has been your experience on how the church has handled the issue of sexuality from someone who has that same-sex attraction? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the church always has this perception of being very unloving, unkind, very hostile. But 
that hasn't been actually been my experience, um, okay. thankfully. Not to say that people like that don't exist out there, but yeah. in my in my experience, the people who I have told about my struggles, who I've shared my testimony with, have all been very uh, loving uh, towards me and encouraging towards me. Um, sort of the uh, example I use from Scripture in uh, John A, where it's like Jesus talks to the woman caught in adultery and like, all the other people are accusing her, and he says he who is without, without sin should cast the first stone. And um, after they all leave, he Jesus comes up to her and says, "Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more." Mm-hmm. And that that's that dual response that Jesus gives to her. I think is the dual response that the church also needs to have of saying, like, "Neither do I condemn you for struggling with something that was outside of your control," but still reaffirming the call in scripture to be holy as God is holy, mm. to do the, to do the things which God has called us to do. And throughout my life, I've, I don't like to use the phrase come out, but like I've told people about like my struggles and what, um, what I've gone through and they've all been very loving and sort of affirming that dual call of Christ or the affirmation of Christ of not being condemning, but also uh, encouraging me to uh, do what scripture has called us to do. Yeah. So how have you kind of been able to kind of reason through this of, uh, you know, I, there's kind of maybe, maybe a few different ways that people can go, but a lot of times it's, well, this is who I am. I've kind of, I didn't choose this way of living. So this is just who I am. And so I have to act out on it mm-hmm. where it seems like you kind of come from the, impro- the approach of, you know, no, I didn't choose this. Uh, but at the same time, I can't act out on it, or I shouldn't act out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, how how have you kind of reasoned through that of this being something, you know, is this part of who you are, or is this... So during high school, I met a guy named Monty, and he basically discipled me. And um, one of the things he drove into me and just reaffirmed over and over again was he constantly spoke into who I am as a Christian and my identity as a Christian. And I think it's really important for people who are dealing with this themselves, or really anyone, um, we shouldn't put our identity in our sexual orientation. Like, we shouldn't put our identity in, um, even though it feels very core to who we are as a person, I think that's more the result of our culture pushing that message. It's like our sexual identity is who we are, but as a Christian... Who I am in Christ is that I'm a son of God. Uh, I I am dearly belo- I'm a dearly beloved child. My identity as a Christian needs to supersede anything else in my life, whether that's yeah. my sexual desires or whether that's um, any other sin struggle that a Christian might be going through. Like no one should define themselves by their sin struggles. No one should define themselves by their temptations. Yeah. Um, like the scripture does not define us that way. God does not look at us that way. Um, he's called us to not sin and to leave a, a lifestyle of sin. But who we are, like Romans A, like we are God's son and by him we cry Abba, Father to him. Like that's that's a really key thing that I've had to learn for myself. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. And I think that kind of goes along with one thing that you, you mentioned in your blog post um, that you said part of the discipleship process is not only telling those who struggle with the issues what not to do, but uh, what positive things we can do to cast a vision for how we can fit into the body of Christ. So kind of what would be your advice, I guess, in um, either someone who is struggling with this and, and understands the Christian position on sexuality or someone who's working with someone who's struggling with this? Like, like for example, the, the mentor you mentioned of Monty, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, yes, there is part of what you said of, of telling them, go and sin no more. But at the same time, 
giving them a positive aspect of how to fit into the body of Christ? How, how do you kind of mentor someone or encourage someone um, in that when they do feel like it's core to who they are? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there aren't really easy answers or like a one size fits all approach to this. Like it'll, a lot of the, what you might do will depend on the person who you're dealing with. And I think that's important that you not just look at all of us who struggle with this as just being a part of this group that, you know, we're all the same. We all have the same story. We all have the same, uh, we all struggle with the same aspects of this. So we're, we're all individuals and we're all different. We all have different strengths and weaknesses and different needs. Probably one of the biggest things that the church can do is um, rediscover a healthy doctrine of singleness. And because you know, the outworking of, well, if I'm not going to get married and I'm just going to struggle with this the rest of my life, then the only uh, role I can have in the future is that I'm going to have to live as a single person. So the church has just traditionally upheld marriage and really sort of downplayed singles. You know, we have yeah. singles ministries to basically get people not single anymore. Yeah, to get them married quickly. Yeah. And like, that's like, if you've called me to be single, then why is that not looked at as a positive thing in the church? Yeah. Or at least they'll say, oh yeah, it's a positive thing. You know, Paul talks about it, but in practice they will have a singles ministry or they'll uh, only talk about the goods of marriage without talking about the goods of singleness. Yeah. So that's uh, that's one thing the church can do. For someone who's going through this personally, I would really encourage you, if you haven't yet, to find either like a, f- a few close friends um, to tell like what you're going through, uh, people you trust. Find someone to disciple you, because really, the core essence in my in my experience, at least, the core essence of struggling with this has been about finding relationships and healthy mm-hmm. relationships that I can lean on, uh, people I can trust, uh, people I can uh, just talk about what I'm going through. Yeah. And I think the one of the positive things that has come out of the culture's push against uh, biblical definitions of uh, sexuality and the like is just that a lot more people are being exposed to these ideas and talking about homosexuality or talking with someone who struggles uh, with same-sex attractions is not as taboo as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a positive for the church in general, that yeah. they can have ministries for people who struggle with same-sex attractions, that they can minister to those who are dealing with this. And even just uh, to minister to those both who are of the Christian faith and affirm a biblical standard of sexuality and both those outside the church who don't affirm that because yeah. um, they need to be reaching out to both groups of people. Yeah, so I think you brought up two good, really good points is the church's response to singleness mm-hmm. and then also the the personal response of building relationships. Kind of going back to your first point, you know, one thing I often hear with students is when, you know, I do these kind of Q&As and students always ask about homosexuality and and one response is like, well, are you are you asking them to be lonely the rest of their lives? And it's kind of this idea that if you're telling someone like, yeah, you can't get married uh, or you shouldn't get married, that you're you're asking them to live their life in pure loneliness, mm-hmm. uh, that, that marriage is that high standard. And, you know, I've heard other people say, you know, when someone gets married, uh, I, I heard someone say when, when this guy got married and, and he said, oh, now you're a real man. As if, yeah. as if a non-married person, like I'm not married, I'm not a real man. Mm-hmm. A- and putting this standard on marriage so high. Now, marriage is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Marriage is a wonderful gift of God. But when you put it at such a high level to those who either cannot get married or, or are not married, 
uh, are either not real men, not real humans, or uh, at some sort of lower level mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and destined to loneliness the rest of their life, it does put someone who's struggling with these things in a very difficult position mm -hmm. uh, when the church kind of puts that view on them. And so I love what you said about this idea of needing to kind of reteach this idea of singleness and a biblical view of singleness and that uh, we as humans are called to holiness mm -hmm. in, in, in whatever orientation, you know, sexual orientation that we have. Um, so that's a huge point is that the church is teaching on that. Yeah. And along with that, the church also needs to redevelop a theology of friendship. Like I just read over the summer, uh, Wesley Hill's book, uh, Spiritual Friendship, and he kind of goes into a lot of the background for how the church really used to have uh, a, a much higher view on friendship than they do today. And they even used to have like ceremonies where they were like two friends with like almost like a marriage ceremony where they would like say, I'm going to dedicate my life to being your friend. Hmm. Like friendship is so key for someone who's struggling with same-sex attractions because if marriage is off the table then friendship is basically what we are left with but yeah. it's not when you talk about both friendship and marriage like marriage can't meet certain needs um that a friendship can't and friendship will be able to meet certain needs that a marriage can't because mm -hmm. you can't depend on your marriage partner for absolutely everything in your life like a lot of people will say like my husband or wife is my best friend but really like they they really aren't meant to meet like every single one of your emotional needs in life. Like you, yeah. ne you need strong brothers and sisters in Christ outside of that one relationship yeah. to minister to you, to hold you accountable, to come alongside you when you're struggling. And like for me, it's it's been a hard journey, but I've learned to be content that whether God has marriage or singleness in my future, and I don't know the answer to that yet, but if singleness is what God has called me to live out, then that's going to be a positive thing for the body of Christ. Because being unmarried, like not having kids, I'll have different opportunities to minister to Christ's body and to others within the church and outside the church that someone who's married won't be able to have yeah. because they have obligations to um, be with their spouse and with their kids and they won't have as much time but as a single person like I I have that opportunity yeah. and that's one of the positive things that the church needs to start talking about in in um, incorporating that into their doctrine of what it means to be single that singleness isn't this like something you settle for singleness is a good thing singleness is something you can live into as a calling in your life and not simply just saying oh you can't get married so you have to be single yeah well and i think we kind of see examples of this and i just think in my own personal life when i graduated from college i could just leave the country and go be a missionary for four years and mm -hmm. and i didn't have to you know worry about you know i have to plan for someone else and and now there are a lot of married couples that go onto the mission field but you know there's there's kind of that less warrior that less kind of burden or what or what maybe i shouldn't say burden but you know that that goes into that of it's just easier mm -hmm. to just pick up and go somewhere um you know when i got my job here in california they said can you just move can you move here in nine days i'm like sure and then i'll just <laughs> yeah. pick up my stuff and i'm going mm -hmm. um you know that's a lot more difficult when you have kids in school and you have to plan around that and and so that completely makes sense of that you know there are there are aspects that that singles can can bring into the body of christ that are so necessary so important and we should see see it as that and not yeah. as, oh, we just hope that you get married one day or, yeah. you know, that this is that kind of that end goal. Mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, as beautiful as, again, as marriage is, that's not the end goal of God's 
purpose for our life. Yeah, I mean, in, when we're in heaven, we won't be married. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. Mm-hmm. It's not to get married. Yeah. Um, now, it is something that a lot of us desire to do and to have, but that isn't the purpose to life. When we look at why were we created, we're created to be in relationship with God mm-hmm. and relationship with others, mm-hmm. but that relationship doesn't have to be a marriage. And, and I think um, something that popped in my mind as you were talking is the idea of um, a correct view of a friendship mm-hmm. of that in order to deeply love someone, you don't have to get married and then have sexual relationship with that person. Yeah. And I deal a lot with this with students of <clears throat> with their boyfriend and the girlfriend. If it's like, well, I love them so much. It's like, well, that sex becomes the next thing. And because I love them and I quickly ask, and, and I think a question that kind of uh, helps them think about this is, well, aren't there other people that you deeply love that if you slept with, <laughs> it would completely destroy and ruin yeah. that relationship, mm-hmm. right? That there is this one place that sex is a healthy uh, part in. And the national statement does talk about that. It, it's not just a document on homosexuality and same-sex attraction, but in sexuality in general, mm-hmm. and that sex is reserved for marriage. Because outside of that, it can destroy relationships. Because think about all the people that you are in relationship with. And I guarantee you that if you slept with any one of them, it would completely destroy that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so we recognize that true friendship, true relationships don't need this one aspect of sexuality. Yeah. And I think that's something really the culture has pushed is just that you can't be happy unless you have sex. Yeah. Like sex is this end all be all goal of life and like we see in our movies and our tvs like the first thing they do like after a date is they have sex just because like that's 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 the only thing they have to hold on to or like that's what they want as their ultimate fulfillment and it's causing people to think that that is that ultimate fulfillment Mm -hmm. we're part of the sexual revolution where that's that's the goal Mm -hmm. and that's what brings true happiness Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, you know, in the movies, it very rarely shows the negative aspects mm-hmm. of the people who sleep together. And then you have unwanted pregnancies. There are a couple of movies about that, but then it always turns out wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's not true. That's not how life works. Um, you know, as we kind of finish up, the last thing you kind of mentioned was the, the importance of friendship, right? And true relationship. And there's a thing that you said that stood out to me was um, uh, that recognizing that all people, we should not just, as someone who doesn't struggle with same-sex attraction, that I should not see all people who do as, oh, this is one group mm-hmm. and deal with it as a group issue. These are valuable human beings created in the image of God mm-hmm. that have this desire and we have to treat them as a person, not as a group, mm-hmm. not as uh, subjects. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is building that relationship, asking questions and actually getting to know the person. Um, and talking with them and having this conversation rather than, you know, like some people say, well, this is just the statement. I'm just going to make this broad general statement that covers the whole group and everything's going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. But we need to take, yes, the, the orthodox position, the Christian belief on, on, on what Christianity teaches about sexuality. But then with that understanding, then live it out in correct practice on how do we build those relationships. Yeah. And it's important because like what we see in culture is like the really extreme uh, versions of people like me or people uh, who aren't Christians, but like living in a homosexual lifestyle, like what the, the internet shows is lots of times, just like the people waving like the rainbow flags and like walking down and just doing really sort of gross things in public. And like, that's the perception a lot of Christians have of people who are gay or people who struggle with same sex attractions yeah. like me, but have chosen to live a celibate life. Um, 
But really, that's not representative of most people who who struggle with this or who are gay. Um, that's we need to get to know people as individuals because they are people with likes and dislikes. They're people who have every every single person I've ever talked with who struggled with this. Like everyone has a different backstory, and like yeah. the same reasons I deal with this, I haven't found a person yet who's had like the same exact reasons for why they deal with uh, what they deal with if they're aware of those things and so it's just really important to get to know people and not to just make assumptions about oh you struggle with uh same-sex attraction because you were sexually abused as a child and like while that's true for uh, a good portion of them that that's not like defines what they are who Mm -hmm. they are like they or like if you had like a distant father that, that was kind of a um, like a common theme in my own story. It was just my relationship with my dad. And like, that's not true of everyone who struggles with same-sex attractions. And yeah. so it's important to really get to know them, get to know who they are. And yeah. to once you get to know them, then that creates an opportunity to minister to them and to see, okay, this is how they would best receive the love of Christ. This is how they need a friend in this capacity. Yeah, um, that's good. Well, as we finish up, I just want to read uh, the last kind of paragraph out of your blog or part of it. Uh, and you wrote, the church must respond with the truth, uh, with the true love found in Jesus, a love that neither condemns a person nor affirms what is wrong, but calls us to bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. Love and concern for the truth must be equally matched by our love and concern for the person with whom we want to share the truth. So we have to have this understanding of truth and love, compassion, but not affirming uh, what the Bible says is wrong. And so, uh, Neil, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, and discussing this important issue with me today. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank you. All righty. And uh, you can continue to find uh, Neil's writings at neilharden.com. Uh, this article was titled, uh, Why is the Nashville Statement Necessary? Make sure you check the blog um, and see the video uh, that Preston Sprinkle put out. I'll post that there. As well as you can uh, post your comments and questions. Send those to me uh, through the Facebook page. Uh, contact at Coffeehouse Questions is email. And then find me on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Ryan poly three or text in your questions and comments at 714-989-6927 have a blessed week and a wonderful day this is coffee house questions with ryan poly won't hesitate to follow your love